Welcome to episode number 49 of the Road to Cinema podcast, featuring director Ken Quapis of the new film A Walk in the Woods, starring Robert Redford and Nick Nolte. Robert Redford plays real-life travel writer Bill Bryson, who returns from England with the intention of finally exploring his home country of the United States by walking the Appalachian Trail. Despite the trepidations of his wife, played by Emma Thompson, Bryson enlists the help of his old friend Katz, played by the exceptional Nick Nolte. Director Ken Quapis walks us through the development process of the film, which at one time was intended to pair up Robert Redford and Paul Newman once again and reunite them from their old days in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and The Sting. You'll learn how Redford at one point had shelved the project after Paul Newman's death and brought on board actor Nick Nolte. We'll also talk about Ken's experience working with actors and the intense production process of A Walk in the Woods, which was partially filmed on the Appalachian Trail. For more information on the Road to Cinema podcast, to read the Road to Cinema blog, and to watch our Road to Cinema YouTube series, please visit jogroadproductions.com. And once again, we're still doing the final draft screenwriting software giveaway, where all you have to do is follow us on Twitter at jogroad, like us on Facebook, Jog Road Productions. Follow us on Instagram, Jog Road Productions. Subscribe to our YouTube channel, Jog Road Productions. And write us a review on the iTunes podcast page for the Road to Cinema podcast. That's right. Do all of the above and you'll have a chance to win a free download of the Final Draft screenwriting software brought to you by Road to Cinema and our friends at Final Draft. And now we join director Ken Quapis as he discusses one of his very first feature film directing experiences, working on a film with Sesame Street and the Muppets and the great Jim Henson. So I wanted to start off uh, by discussing what was, I think, one of your very first feature films, which was called Fall That Bird, which was actually uh, with the Muppets, with Sesame Street. So I'm kind of curious, working on a project like that, which I'm sure was, you know, very uh, technically challenging, um, if, you know, there were sort of any lessons that you picked up on that film that sort of carried on, uh, you know, in your career. Well, it was a, I mean, it was a complicated film to shoot, partly because it had a very low budget and a, and a, very, and a, and a very short schedule, so I really had to, I really had to plan everything and and uh, but one of the, you know one of the beautiful things about you know working with uh, Jim Henson and his puppeteers is you know they're they're so they're so good at what they do and in a way you know, one of the beauty one of the beautiful things about the Muppets is their is how simple they are uh, there's not a lot of complicated animatronics later in life I've directed films like Big Miracle that had huge, complicated animatronic whales, but, you know, Kermit and even Big Bird, obviously a a cumbersome full-body costume, it's still, you know, all fairly simple, very basic. I mean, the genius of Jim Henson was coming up with the idea of giving puppeteers access to what the television camera saw. And so, for example, Big Bird, Carol Spinney, you know, has a small television monitor basically strapped to his chest so he can see what the film cameras 
puppeteer sees the image. And uh, but anyway, so it was yeah, it was technically complicated, but at the same time, it wasn't nearly as cumbersome as a film, uh, say that came out the same year or, or uh, just prior to some of that Berg, Joe Dante's Gremlins, uh, which had a lot of lot of complicated animatronics. Yeah. Yeah, one of the uh, actually one of the the great sequences I remember in Fall of That Bird was the opening, which was kind of a parody of Patton. Yes. Where I think Oscar the Grouch came out with the American flag behind him and gave that whole monologue. The Grouch <laughs> National Anthem. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, because I remember I saw that as a kid, and then I eventually saw Patton, and I go, "Oh, that's a parody of that." <laughs> I. Uh, I the good thing about the children's television workshop that produced the film and the Warner Brothers that produced the film is they gave us they gave us a pretty free hand so there are a lot of you know film parodies there's the parody of Patton there's you know there's a shot for shot you know remake of the famous cornfield scene from North by Northwest or Wheatfield I'm not sure what that what's growing in that field um, and uh, but I'm very proud of that Patton scene because it's, I just like the idea of of, of a film that opens with basically, uh, you know, someone basically telling you to scram. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then moving on to uh, to a Walk in the Woods, um, I know the, the screenplay has been in development, the adaptation of O'Brien's book for many years, and Robert, Newm- Robert Redford had Paul Newman in mind uh, for the Nick Nolte role at one point. Uh, so when you came on to it, what was your initial take on the material and the, the screenplay that had been given to you at that point? I didn't know the book. I mean, I'd heard the book. I knew the book was very popular. And I have friends who are Bill Bryson super fans, but I hadn't read it. So actually, I read the screenplay first. And uh, when I met with Redford, I, I you know, told him that what I was really struck by is the, you know, the, the balance between sort of heart and humor in, in, in the script. And I felt like that was something... I knew how to do. I knew. I, I said. I. I feel that's in my wheelhouse. Being able to kind of, you know, have create a story that's on one hand very funny, but always grounded, and, and yet still has some soul. I don't think that's easy to do these days in feature films, to be honest. And uh, but I also told uh, Bob that I responded to the essential optimism of the story. I mean, it, it's it, it does have a there's a there is a retrospective quality. These two characters looking back on choices they've made in their lives, and and it's certainly about two guys facing the end of their days in a way. But the you know the but the the outcome is really that you know they sort of uh, agree that you know there are more adventures to have. There's there's another adventure right around the corner. So I I think that was a good. I just felt that was a good. It was reason enough to make a story. Yeah, I was curious because I'm not as familiar with the book. Um, a lot of the the great humor that's in the that's in the film is that also included in Bill Bryson's book as well. Yes, in fact, one of the reasons the book is noteworthy is because of how funny it is. So, I mean, there's certainly a lot of uh, things that we invented for the film. But uh, and please read the book. It's really it's really great. Uh, but the the uh, the book. Has um, uh, there are, uh, most of the major comic characters, for instance, 
the Nick Offerman character, the kind of wonky REI salesperson, uh, Kristen Schaal's uh, character, the obnoxious hiker Mary Ellen. Those are all characters uh, right out of the book. And even the even the 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 uh, newlyweds driving uh, driving under the influence in that Chevelle. <laughs> those are those are in the book as well. Well, I was curious um, how you went about executing uh, the scenes on the trail, if you actually used the real trail or if some of that was uh, built or on some kind of manufactured set. We didn't have the means uh, or the time to take a whole company on the actual trail. And there are, of course, large stretches of the trail that are wilderness, so you can't, you know, even, you, you couldn't even access them. So we were based in Atlanta, and we did most of the shooting in and around Atlanta. And the good news about that part of Georgia is there's a ton of great hiking, and there are many, many, many forests, wooded areas, parks that resemble stretches of the, I'll call it the bottom half of the Appalachian Trail. Our story starts in Georgia and gets about halfway through Virginia. So uh, then, after we did principal photography, we took a smaller unit up along the trail itself and photographed the characters at various iconic spots, maybe the most iconic being the place called McAfee in Virginia, which is that rock promontory that overlooks this huge valley, and, uh, which is the, one of the signature images of the film. Uh, but by the way, even in Georgia, you know, it, it seems like the, the most exciting locations were always completely remote, inaccessible, and at times we actually used horses and on a couple of occasions, camels to haul our gear into the woods. Wow. So I didn't even know uh, camels were indigenous to, uh, to Georgia. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I, I know this. I have no idea where they came from. I think they came from Georgia, but we had camels who were who are uh, loaded down with film, film equipment. Oh, the other thing that's important, too, um, the film was photographed by my longtime collaborator, John Bailey, um, and we shot the trail scenes, all the exteriors, on 35 millimeter, which, as you certainly know, is getting harder and harder to do. It's getting harder and harder to shoot 35 because there's nowhere to even process the film anymore. Um, but we wanted to um, we wanted to shoot 35 for a lot of reasons. One, we just love the idea of that. Oh gosh, that sort of ineffable quality that a 35 millimeter image on a big screen gives you. But we also felt like 35 would actually give us more portability. Shooting digitally, you know. Come, you, you end up dragging along all sorts of electronic umbilical cords and the lo- and you know 35 put the camera on your shoulder and you go yeah you don't have to worry about uh, lugging any extra battery packs or if, no. you know really mm-hmm. uh, is it difficult to convince producers and and uh, financiers to go with 35 millimeter since there are so few labs out there that uh, process the material yeah it's hard it's definitely hard in, in our case, we made the argument that the trail scenes would both look better and the, sh- 
shooting would be more practical if we shot 35. Uh, but it's getting very hard. I mean, there are certainly some major directors who who have the ability. I mean, I believe that you know Chris Nolan is one. I, I know that there are some people who swear by 35, and they seem to, you know, but they there are people who have maybe the clout just to say <laughs> we're shooting at 35, no questions asked. In my case, we had to we had to make an argument for it, and we won part. We, we, we it was a partial victory. Uh, being out in the woods in those environments, um, you were saying how you had to sort of lug equipment uh, into those areas. I was curious, sort of your core crew in that area, was it a very slim down crew? Only uh, for the second unit work. I mean, the, uh, the, I mean I, I, the crew is pretty much, you know, the crew for principal photography was you know, pretty much your standard size crew. I mean, anytime you're going to, I mean, for instance, you know, we, we, we needed to have, you know, construction people, grips, et cetera. There were times we needed to build uh, bridges or build shooting platforms in the woods in order to, you know, kind of create the, the shop we needed. Uh, so we had a, you know, we had a healthy number of people. Only the second unit was stripped down. And, uh, for example, we didn't need to bring along a sound recordist, uh, a sound team on the second unit. We weren't recording dialogue scenes. We were out there mainly to get uh, shots of the guys on the trail. I was curious, um, because I know Robert Redford had Paul Newman in mind uh, for the role of Cats at one point. Was In the screenplay that you read, was that role sort of tailored for Paul Newman at all? Or um, Well, let me answer that in two ways. First of all, I, I was a latecomer to the party. I, I, there were other writers and directors involved for several years before I came aboard. So by the time I came aboard, the, the script was uh, that, that Nolte was already cast. Bob had already invited Nolte to do the role. So I've never, to be honest, I've never read the first draft or two of the script, which certainly had Paul Newman in mind. I mean, um, I know Bob told me one of his concerns about Newman was he was uh, he felt he'd never be able to convince Paul Newman to put on the weight required to play the role <laughs> because you know Stephen Katz is as you'll read in the book and certainly in the film he's out of shape he's you know he's a mess you know and and he's overweight you know so um, so I don't Bob said he was that was one of his concerns but sadly you know Paul grew ill, and, and when he passed away, Redford you know, shelved the project for a while because at first he couldn't possibly imagine doing it with anyone else. What happened after that is that Bob was working on a, a film of his own, another film, The Company You Keep, and he cast Nolte in a small room. And what Bob told me is that he and Nolte actually didn't know each other. They, you know, they've, they've been movie stars for decades, but and maybe they've crossed paths, but they really didn't know each other. But Bob cast him in a small part, and they had scenes together, and they just got up splendidly during the making of The Company You Keep. And when Bob wrapped that film, he pulled A Walk in the Woods back off the shelf, and he said, I think we found our guy. 
Yeah. What's uh, fun about the film is seeing Nick Nolte back in sort of a leading role, which, you know, we haven't really seen in a long time. And what's wonderful is that Redford and and Nolte have this great comedic chemistry with each other. They really play off each other. And uh, I was curious, did they have any sort of rehearsal period at the beginning or did they sort of jump into it uh, right on the set? They pretty much jumped into it. I mean, we we definitely had a rehearsal period, but it was less a period where we would kind of get scenes on their feet and more just a period where we would uh, talk about the characters, talk about the history uh, of their friendship. Because one of the key things for me is that, you know, uh, Katz and Bryson have not seen each other for decades, and yet they were the best of friends when they were young. So it was important for Bob and Nick to really... Uh, create this sense of shared history, even if the characters had not seen each other for a while. And, and on top of that, that they actually had a, a major falling out. But you want you know, so we talked a lot in rehearsal about this, what were the points in common uh, between these characters. And a lot of it had to do with, you know, the, the uh, Bob and Nick bringing their own stories to the, to, to these characters. Um, you know, I think that I actually like one of the things I, I I think really works about the film is that it's nothing anyone would know, but that Bob and Nick really I think felt they each had something personal to express with these characters. Uh, so, anyways, it was that kind of rehearsal period. It wasn't so much figuring out staging or you know, again getting scenes on their feet. It was it was more just sort of creating the you know the history of the characters. Yeah. Uh, the way they, if you're interested, Bryson, these characters show up in a couple other books of Bryson's, and my favorite, it's so it's such a good book. Bryson wrote a memoir about growing up in Des Moines, called The Life and Times of the Thunderbolt Kid, and that book features a whole section about the friendship between Bryson and Katz when they were teenagers, and it's really great. Yeah, it's great because when you watch uh, the film, you sort of try to imagine what their earlier days were like and how that uh, bond developed because they seem to be so close and they have this sort of easy rapport with one another. And it's also nice, too, because for me, both as a director, but as, when I watch the film, it, it's also nice for me to to reflect on the, you know, the two actors and their respective filmographies. I mean, we grew up with these men. And each of them has such a stunning body of work, you know, in, in Bob's case, both as a director and as an actor. And in Nick's case, I mean, I think people just forget how many amazing roles McNulty has done. Yeah, it's, um, I remember uh, the film that he did with Paul Schrader, Affliction, uh, I think oh, it Affliction. is. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, but there's so many. I mean, I, I, was, I was talking to Nick about, I mean, one of my favorite roles is Nick's fairly early in his career, was uh, the adaptation of Robert Stone's Dog Soldiers called Fool Stop the Rain. Oh, Carl uh, Weiss, I think, directed that, yeah. Yeah, Carl Weiss directed, I think it was Tuesday Well that was in it. Fantastic film. Yeah, um, I'm curious, sort of, um, you know, on the set with uh, Nick and Robert Redford, if they improvised at all, was there any sort of um, creation at all on the set that was sort of different from what was in the screenplay itself? You know, by and large, no. They pretty much stuck to the script. I think, again, it's, it's part of their 
so good is that they kind of make this stuff seem kind of off the cuff and conversational, but it, it was all scripted. And, and uh, you know, I, I, I'll single out one scene in particular, which uh, I'm really happy with, although I couldn't be sure whether it would work. And that's the nighttime scene when they're stuck on that ledge. And each of them, they're not there's a section of the scene where they're not talking to each other. They're sort of, it's almost like dueling monologues. Each of them kind of has a, a line, but they're talking about, they're, it's almost like they're just musing out loud rather than interacting. And I thought, God, is this actually going to work? And these, and they make it work. It's effortless. Yeah. I know it's, uh, it's wonderful to see those two in a film because they have such a iconography from, you know, their history in, you know, film separately. Uh, this is one of the you know rare screen duos that you haven't seen together. And um, I also am you know very aware working with them. You know you, you really get a sense that these are two guys who have you know kind of honed their craft on the big screen, and that they've you know they've just developed ways to accomplish a lot by doing very little, and you know just the smallest gesture here. It's just that kind of, you know, it's just good big screen thinking. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, people sort of forget about that. That's sort of the uh, the genius of film acting. Mm -hmm. You know, in contrast to theater acting, is really understanding the nuance and how you know just subtle movements can really translate, even if you don't necessarily see it on the set working. Once it's you know on the screen or on film, uh, it can really make a tremendous difference. And there's also many scenes in the film. Maybe the most prominent is the one where Nolte talks about his uh, struggles with alcoholism. And, uh, or I should say his struggles with alcohol. Because Bob um, has almost no dialogue in the scene. And yet Bob's critical to the scene. And Bob's, the, the shots of Bob listening to Nick's story are so compelling and, and, um, and again, it's one of those classic things where even though one actor has 95% of the words, it's a two-hander scene. Yeah, so much of uh, film acting, too, is just that listening and reacting to what's going on and, you know, understanding that even when you're not speaking, you're still part of the scene. You know, your thought process is still there. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I, it, it's so... It was an, believe me, an embarrassment of riches. And, and believe me, as a director too, I, you know, they 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 were eager for direction. They want, you know, they they definitely enjoyed my direction. But sometimes the smartest thing for a director to do, especially when you have people like Bob and Nick, is just to shut up and get out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> Let two pros do their thing. You know. Yeah. Do you find that um, sort of in general with actors, when you cast them, is that a lot of your direction sort of saying you believe this person can do the role and that, you know, you're sort of leaving it up to them to sort of execute it in a way? Yeah. I mean, I think that every, every, every story and every role is a little different, but what you hope is that you're not having to get someone to go so against who they are, you know, by nature, you know, unless they, unless, uh, unless it's, you know, unless somebody is really trying to, you know, disappear into a character that's very different than who they are, but, but I would say certainly in the case of Bryson and Katz, I think the goal was to let Bob and Nick 
bring as much of themselves, you know, as much as as much of their you know their personalities to it as possible. Uh, I'm curious on on this film and also other films you've directed. Um, do you always learn something new when you're going through the editing process, and you know you're mixing sound and you're laying in music? Uh, do you sometimes discover things that you thought you know you never imagined when you were shooting the film and when you were in pre-production? I would say, yeah. I mean, I, I would say that the editing process is always very mysterious to me, and and. Uh, I mean, I would say, let me talk about this film. I mean, one of the things about The Walk in the Woods is that it's not a film with a, it doesn't have a complicated plot, per se. It's really very simple. Two guys decide to walk. And uh, and by definition, the action is slower paced. These guys, it's not like two guys are running, they're walking. So part of the process in cutting the film was to trust that things didn't need to be pushed just for the sake of pace. That, that in fact, we, you know, and again, I, I was helped immeasurably by having you know, a, a, an editor, Carol Littleton, who understands how to tell a story in a sort of quiet and unassuming and unforced way. But part of the challenge was just trusting that the audience, that, that the audience, that the Finally, the, the satisfaction of the film required that you were just with these guys experiencing the trail, that there was no need to get to the next story theater, no need to, again, force things along, uh, that, that you know, letting the scenes breathe really was critical for this kind of film. Yeah, is that sometimes the tendency uh, for, you know, people to sort of comment, you know, you need to bring up the pace, you know, and sort of... Uh, you know, even if it's not necessarily conducive to the material? Are those sometimes comments that you get quite a bit? Or, Well, I think that, I mean, I don't think it's any surprise that, you know, uh, that audiences have less attention span for leisurely told stories now than ever. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's so funny, you know, we, we, we look back on, some of the great thrillers by Hitchcock, and it's remarkable when you watch them how slowly they unfold. I mean, I, I saw Rear Window again not too long ago, and Rear Window is so brilliant, but it 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 moves at a snail's pace for the longest time, and and I think it, it that's why it works. It just sort of you you just sort of slowly sort of move in. You move into Jimmy Stewart's apartment. You're living there with him, and then finally, when things really start to grip you, you're you're that much more prepared and ready and involved. I think that too often producers and studios think of feature films as, you know, 90-minute trailers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes great filmmakers think that way too, you know. Yeah, I always feel like you can uh, sort of get more of a sense of environment too, you know, like in those Hitchcock films, you know, that are that are thrillers, you're sort of seeping into the environment of the characters and you're learning more about them and mm -hmm. you know, that becomes you know a richer experience uh at the end and i think with the walk in the woods the other challenge editorially was trying to i mean there's no question that there's humor there's actual comedy it's not so much jokes but it's you know the behavior of the guys their interaction meeting sort of you know good comic characters along the way but really the film has, you know, sort of this, 
content that needs to percolate underneath the humor throughout. And, and so that by the end of the picture, you know, you know, my hope is that that the emotional content can sort of take over, but not in a way that it announces itself, but in a way that's, you know, that sort of, that, that sort of, you, you, it, 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 it sort of takes, takes you, not so much by surprise, but, you know, it, it's been there all along, but suddenly it's, it's again, it, it, becomes, it takes center stage. I'm not sure if I'm being clear about that, but, they, you know, sometimes you go to a film, maybe even a comedic film, when suddenly there's a turn and there's a scene that's, okay, here is the heartfelt moment, okay? They may as well put a billboard up. Here comes the, the emotional part. And for me, what I was hoping to do was sort of never have that feeling, but sort of kind of, again, let the emotional content always sit there just beneath the comedic surface so that when it finally bubbles to the surface, uh, yeah, again, it, it just feels that much more organic. Yeah, no, I think that's great because it's not sort of indicating what the emotions are. It's sort of letting the audience do the work and let it slowly uh, come to them in a way. The other thing, too, and this is to Bob's credit, and Bob and I spoke about this a lot, Bob is, you know, anything that, you know, I think Bob shies away from anything that would smack of sentimentality. So even like some of like the big turning points emotionally uh, are done almost like throwaways. And the, the most important one is when they decide to quit. And it was, and one, of the, and Bob just said he just wanted that to feel like a completely tossed off thing. You want to go? Yeah, I really do. Now, you know, it's, and so I really, again, admire, uh, you know, Bob. Again, Bob's sort of sense of wanting to never uh, sort of either over-dramatize or, or, or sentimentalize anything. Yeah, no, I think that's, uh, you know, something in, a, in other films, you sort of imagine those moments as sort of the big crescendo of music, you know, we're quitting finally, but here it was just so natural and it was real to what actually happened, you know, I would, I would yeah, bet. absolutely. And, uh, and again, you know, the, 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 a lot of good storytelling skills, Bob, obviously Bob developed this script, so, you know, this is, this is, something that he'd been been cooking this for a while so. uh, I'm curious when you know a film of yours is released in theaters and uh, you know it's get, even at you know in this case uh, Sundance uh, where it premiered do you are you there with the audience watching it trying to gauge reactions at all well this is an independently financed film so we didn't go through the normal uh, testing process that, that studios insist that you go through um, I would say on every studio picture I've directed there's at least oh I don't know three maybe even four previews usually three uh, during post-production in this case we kind of we had sort of informal screenings you know family and friends invited to look at the film but we never we never did those kind of proper market research screenings so frankly when we got to Sundance it was the first time I'd seen the film with that big a group now, Sundance is a particular audience. It's an audience of film enthusiasts and filmmakers. So, you know, it, it, naturally there's going to be, it, it may be a, a different reaction than you get if you took the film to somewhere in, you know, in middle America, for example. But Sundance, the, 
audience there was quite enthusiastic, and and then I'm you know even more happy to report that then after Broad Green, the, the new distribution company, picked it up, they did want to test it properly, and we uh, where did we go? And we went to Arizona and showed it to a test audience, and they were just as, if not more, uh, enthusiastic about it. So we were very heartened by that. Uh, I'm curious, is there a project uh, that you're currently developing at the moment? You know, I'm developing a, a few things, and as always, I, I try and keep one foot in the television world and one foot in the feature world. Uh, nothing that I want to, no, nothing I want to single out quite yet, but I, I feel like I've been fortunate over the past few years that I've been able to help launch interesting television series and, and get feature films in, in the theaters as well. So Yeah, you have uh, Happy-ish, which is on uh, Showtime Happy at the moment. is a show I'm very proud of, uh, written by Shalom Offlander, wonderfully irreverent fiction writer turned screenwriter. And uh, with Steve Coogan and Catherine Hahn and Bradley Whitford, a terrific show. Very, very, very dark uh, comedic show. And I'm just you know, thrilled that Showtime let us put that crazy thing on the air. <laughs> <laughs>